Hi and warm welcome everyone to episode number 39 of Sustainability Explored. It's a podcast where I unfold with the help of invited guests from across the world how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. In previous episodes, I covered fashion, flowers, bedsheets made of eucalyptus lyocell material, cannabis, tourism, finance and impact investment, um, urbanism and cities, business models, economy, film, and even a social network for sustainability professionals, all through the prism of sustainability. Today, we are talking about conscious capitalism, culture and leadership with Johanna Lyman from NextGen Orgs. We will learn what conscious capitalism is, what are its benefits, how the idea or the philosophy of conscious capitalism is different from, for example, corporate social responsibility, the examples of companies acting in the spirit of conscious capitalism, and what awaits us in the nearest future regarding the market and its rules. Johanna helps fast-growing companies build brave cultures. This is an abbreviation that you will learn the meaning of in the interview. For higher productivity, greater innovation, and stronger revenue and profits. She has worked with startups, tech companies, professional service firms, nonprofits, and manufacturers, to name a few. These came to next-gen orgs when their teams couldn't keep up with the fast growing, uh, fast growth of the company, or they were stuck at an inflection point. Everything is changing quickly and radically. The global pandemic is a game changer, and we will still be feeling its effect in the years to come. Even before the pandemic, 50% of the S&P 500 wouldn't exist in 10 years, according to some studies. Companies that survive will need to do things differently. We can see that the competitive advantage is already going to purpose-driven companies. Every company has an innate wisdom it wants to express, and the purpose of its leaders is to tap into that wisdom to run the business more efficiently. The businesses can only rise to the level of self-awareness of its leaders. Emotionally intelligent leaders have a strong competitive advantage in today's markets. Brave cultures are mission and purpose-driven, first and foremost. They actively embrace both failure and equity, diversity and inclusion for more, faster and better innovation and change management. That's a massive discrepancy between leaders who know innovation is crucial for business success. And the number uh, who can effectively improve innovation Join us for this interview to learn more about conscious capitalism, conscious leadership and culture, and stakeholders' orientation. Hi, Joanna. Thanks so much for joining me today for our conversation about conscious capitalism, culture and leadership. I know you are doing something great with the companies establishing in short terms, I read it on LinkedIn, uh, breaking their culture and creating what is called brave culture. Today, I'd like to, to know your opinions about what, what is it, conscious capitalism. But before we start, I'd like you to introduce yourself a, a bit more for the listeners. 
Okay, thanks for having me, Anna. So I'm Johanna Lyman, and I'm the founder and CEO of a company called NextGen Orgs. And we help small companies grow, build sustainable profitability and high-performing teams. I'm also the board president for the Bay Area chapter of Conscious Capitalism. I've been involved with the organization for about three and a half years and have been the president for the past year. How did you discover this idea of conscious capitalism? Why did you start, you know, moving in that direction? After college, I joined a Fortune 500 company. And don't worry, I'll fast forward. <laughs> and left that company and then two others because I was asked to do something that was outside of my ethics. And in one case, it was illegal. So I thought it was just me, that my standards were too high and I wasn't cut out for corporate America. So I left at the end of 2004 and became a coach and consultant in 2005 and read the book Conscious Capitalism when it came out in 2013. And it was only then that I realized, oh, wait, these are my people. There are companies that are operating as a force for good in the world. There are companies that are ethical and have standards and care about more than just profits. And, you know, sign me up. And then what happened after that? So then I got, then I was able to get the framework for how, you know, this thing that I had just been kind of doing from feeling, you know, doing what feels right. Now I had the framework, which is the four tenets of conscious capitalism. And those tenets are business as has a higher purpose beyond just profit. They have uh, conscious leadership. They care about all stakeholders. So anything and anyone impacted by the business is considered a stakeholder. And then lastly is conscious culture. And that is developing a culture of psychological safety and true belonging. I've been doing the podcast for one episode more than a year <laughs> by now. And the more I talk to people, the more I get an impression that it's just impossible that today we're still talking about sustainability. In my opinion, in what, considering everything I know now, how is it even possible that we were doing things differently at all? You know, sustainable is the only way there should be. And we are still talking about the old way and the new way and the sustainable way. How, I don't even know how to ask this question. Why is there capitalism and a new, a whiter, lighter branch of conscious capitalism. Well, let, let me just say that I share your confusion or that just like, it's mind boggling to me that companies don't all operate as conscious businesses, just from the simple perspective that it's really good for business. There's, you know, I've got a million stats on why you should operate. If you really are considering it from a point of view of profitability, revenue growth, like the best way to do business. But why we have capitalism versus conscious capitalism, I'm sad to say, and this is particularly relevant as at the time of this recording, I believe it's because it was birthed at the same time as slavery. 
so this idea this beautiful idea that adam smith had about capitalism driven by an unseen hand which we might think of as a higher some sort of higher intelligence than ours right and unfortunately the idea was just co-opted immediately and they took it and ran with it and it created this exploitive system rather than what was intended to be a regenerative system and then the beast started feeding itself yeah the system started to prey on exploitation and pumping out the the profits right do you think with everything that is going on currently triggered firstly by the pandemic and then followed by the job losses and then the the chain started to unfold it's like a domino effect do you think now there is a chance that conscious capitalism will flourish some click some movement in the in the head of i don't know collective market is going to happen so that they turn towards sustainability higher purpose different culture like okay literally seriously guys let's sit down there is, there is no more time to waste no resources and like now it's the time to do things differently and the right way at the same time that is my most earnest hope and i do believe that now is the time you know i've been saying i was born for these times as challenging as they are you know I, we don't want to go back to no, what was normal normal was exploitive normal was harmful normal caused people to have intense amounts of unhealthy stress and normal was killing us and it was killing our black and brown brothers and sisters more than those of us with the privilege of whiteness but it was killing us all so normal was finally not normal at all it was just comfortable for certain layers of society and that's all right yeah. how is conscious capitalism different from what is now very popular here in ukraine and europe corporate social responsibility so i think the biggest difference is that companies that are looking at corporate social responsibility are looking at it as a separate piece that the business has to do. Whereas conscious capitalism, corporate social responsibility is baked into the culture and the way of doing business. It's a great start. If you want to have some CSR guidelines, excellent, start there. But then there's more. Yeah, that, that's my next question. In your company, in the next, next gen orgs, a bit hard to, <laughs> to, to, too many letters, a bit hard to pronounce. In your company, how do you approach this? What exactly does the company do and how does it work? So we help companies build brave cultures, right? And so that's about expanding what's possible. We have uh, four tenets of brave cultures and they map to the four tenets of conscious capitalism. The first is that these companies that have brave cultures are purpose-driven. The second is they operate 
with conscious communication. And this maps to the, the tenet of conscious leadership. We do a lot of work with emotional intelligence and developing positive mindsets and navigating conflict in healthy ways. Then the third tenet of brave cultures is that they're wildly innovative, which maps to the tenet of conscious culture. So we help people get comfortable being uncomfortable. We teach them how to navigate change, how to keep their systems, their physical systems operating optimally when during times of change, because we know that, you know, change is hard and the limbic system can shut us down and have us working from the reptilian brain instead of the prefrontal cortex, which is the smart part of the brain. So we give them tools and skills to be better at being okay with change. And then the fourth tenet is that they are fiercely inclusive, which maps to the tenet of stakeholder orientation. So we do unconscious bias trainings, and then we work with consultants of color who speak to restorative HR processes and how to just make your hiring process more equitable and and then speaking to the systemic privilege that is just inherent in our system because the United States was born on the backs of black and brown people you know and we've never given proper reparations so everything about the system is white and white serving and that's given all the the protests and the demonstrations and the riots that are happening in this country right now it's not something that is because of our current president although he is absolutely fanning the flames but this is something that is rooted deep into the fabric of our culture and it's just time for it to change and that's why we're seeing this so we're talking more about systemic abuse and systemic uh, problem. Yes, that's where it starts. And that's why, you know, here there's a lot of conversation about, but I'm not a racist. If you're not actively doing anti-racist work and getting educated by an anti-racism educator, then you're still part of the problem. Because as one of my mentors says, white can't see whiteness. So mm. I strongly recommend people to, you know, start educating yourself, read articles, read books, get a mentor. I studied in, in Europe and we had 20 people from 17 countries. I recently had a call with my uh, classmate. He's in Singapore. We had Asians, Americans, both North and South. We had Egypt, we had Nigeria, Ethiopia, Balkan Peninsula, Ukraine, you name it, Europeans, Ireland. So all the religions you can imagine, biggest religions, all the colors, uh, white, yellow, brown, and black. And we never had these problems. As my Singaporean classmate uh, put it, yes, we agree to disagree. But it's true. You know, I'm still looking at everything that is happening and following the news. 
I was reminded of one situation. I was once crossing in a train the border between France and Italy in the south. And policemen, even though there are technically no borders, the police still enters the train and checks randomly the passports. And this random um, method is always about black people, simply because they're black. And I see the police comes, I'm also, I'm not a local there. I don't have French passport and I was, I was just on the residency card there. So I just see police come in, automatically take my card out and say, no, I don't need yours. I'm like, no, you need mine too. I can be as well of a terrorist as anyone on this train. And in fact, if someone would ask me to smuggle something or, or anything, you know, I would ask a person like me to do it instead of risking with anyone else. And I, I almost had an argument with, the, and not the first time, with the police. With the policeman, like, no, you, you need to check my card, as well as maybe you, you will need to check anyone else's, not white and, and not just black people. That's unfair. It's also part of the systemic racism because, uh, and I learned this recently, the police started, that, that institution of the police department started as slave patrols. So they have always and only been about suppressing black bodies. That's why we have this problem. That is crazy. That's very hard to, to put in, in the brain and you know, to wrap my mind around it. Yeah. Well, we created this mess. Now it's up to us to, to clean to it see. up. Yep, exactly. You mentioned the book, uh, Conscious Capitalism, Yes. Something. The idea was created by the Whole Foods co-founder, I know John Mackey, and marketing professor Raj Saisodian. Do you know of any other examples of companies that are acting in the spirit of conscious capitalism today? Yes, there are many. Some that folks will recognize, Patagonia, Starbucks, there's one this isn't as recognizable, but it's a multi-billion dollar company called Barry Waymiller. And Bob Chapman was the owner of Barry Waymiller, is the owner of Barry Waymiller. And they are one of my favorite case studies because they're a manufacturing company. They're not sexy at all. People What's don't it? know their names. So how they grew, it was a $30 million company when Bob Chapman inherited the business from his father. And he had a couple of moments, like a couple of aha moments that led him to start operating as a conscious company. And one of those aha moments was when he realized that the people closest to the problem probably had the best answer to solve it. So he started walking the floors of the factories and he started talking to the employees. And what we know about employee engagement is that the, the biggest factor to having engaged employees is if people feel like they're being heard. So instantly morale started rising, engagement increased, turnover decreased, 
and the business became more profitable. So he was like, hmm, there's something to this. So what he does now, and what he's done for the past at least 10 years, is he goes and he purchases manufacturing companies that are struggling. And instead of doing the, the non-conscious thing and laying people off and, you know, moving the headquarters and putting people out of jobs, he keeps the staff the way it is and he just indoctrinates them to the culture of Barry Waymiller. And his turnaround success is phenomenal. He has turned around, I want to say over a hundred companies that were failing and are now, and they're now thriving and kept them in their local communities and, you know, with no job losses, in fact, job gains. So he's, um, he's just a beautiful, beautiful human being. From what you named Patagonia, Starbucks, cannot speak about Starbucks, but Patagonia is highly likable uh, company. I think yes. due to the leadership in big part, due to the leadership of their CEO, I recently yes. um, followed on LinkedIn her uh, live with uh, Daniel Roth, uh, the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. It was very... Uh, oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, you were, you were there too. Yeah. <laughs> very engaging, very inspiring. And you can see in the attitude of the person that she, with all her being, she acts in, in a very human way. Like, I don't care if the company will not survive these times. What I care about is people. You know, I want my people to be safe. I, I still cannot believe that it, this is not the way others are doing it. In part, I have this picture of our local politics. No one cares. They say, we are only here for four years. And then we go to, to our French Riviera resorts and you, you forget about us forever. Sometimes it's, it feels that businesses operating in business as usual uh, you know standard even when they are the owners it feels like they are doing it in for the short-term perspective yes and that's because of the system that we've set up that rewards short-term gains that's the way the stock markets work and that's why most of the examples of conscious businesses will be from privately held companies because the pressure for publicly traded companies is so great that it's really hard to stand true you know what's good for the long term which is one of the reasons why public benefit corps were created so they are a legal form of corporation in the united states that is baked into the legal structure that they have to operate as conscious businesses, that they have to care about all stakeholders, not just shareholders. So companies that are public benefit corps also get the B-Lab certification, so they're B-Corps. Now the B-Corp, for your listeners, is not a legal form. It's an independent assessment that's carried out, and it's got like 200 or so, 215, I think, ways that you can be a B Corp, right? You have to get a certain percentage of them. You don't have to have all of them, but you have to get a certain percentage of them to get certified as a B Corp. But if you're both 
a B Corp and a public benefit corp, then you can be in the stock market and not have danger of losing your culture and losing the consciousness in the company. And this is actually what happened to Whole Foods. They were not set up as a public benefit corp. And so they had these vigilante investors gobbling up shares and then wanting to put pressure on them to have a more short-term approach. So the reason they ended up getting acquired by Amazon is it was the lesser of like three or four different evils. They had to get the protection from these vigilante investors. But if they had been a public benefit corp, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. In your practice, in your professional practice, when you get on a client, where does the, the change start with them? It starts with the, the leaders at the top. And I always say that a company can only be as conscious as the least conscious of its leaders. So it's a very personal journey that we take people on. And really what it's about at its core is about doing the hard inner work of becoming a more conscious human, developing your emotional intelligence, becoming more self-aware. And it's interesting, there's a researcher found that 95% of the people she studied thought that they were emotionally intelligent but only 10 to 15% actually were. What does it mean to be emotionally intelligent? Maybe I am not an an emotionally intelligent person. I need to know what are the signs. (laughs) Yes, so there's four aspects of emotional intelligence. The first is self-awareness. So the ability to identify inside yourself what's happening, what you're reacting to, what emotions you're feeling. So like if you get triggered from somebody, the ability to sit with that feeling and track it back to why did what that person said cause a trigger reaction in me? And then the second one is self-management, which is the ability to manage and regulate your own emotions. So when you get triggered, you don't go off as a triggered person, but you can like sit with it and then respond instead of react. The third aspect is social awareness, and that's the ability to walk into a room and kind of take the pulse of what's happening. You know, you maybe walk into a meeting and everybody stops talking and you realize, oh, they were just disagreeing about something or, oh, they were, you know, so-and-so's not happy and they're not voicing their unhappiness. So the ability to kind of energetically read people, which is a learnable skill. And then the the fourth aspect is relationship management. And that is the ability to be in relationship with all kinds of people, whether you agree with them or not, whether you like them or not, to really inspire people to work together toward a greater good. Number three, reading the mood of the room, energetic feel. That's my top skill uh, since school times. You get back home and you immediately know if mom is not in the mood anymore. Yes, you know what? It is the superpower of those of us who grew up in volatile situations. 
because we we had to it was you know maybe not life on the line but certainly physical safety i wanted to ask you about your team it sounds like it consists of behavioral psychologists am i right well, yeah so we have our core team and then we have strategic partners so we've got really a number of people that we work with we have folks that are experts at conflict resolution we have folks that are diversity equity and inclusion educators we have a lot of certified coaches and some of those coaches do have background in psychology um, but not all of them Mm -hmm. Is the team big? So the core team, there are six of us. So it was just me. And I'm actually, as we record this, I'm in the process of merging with one of my strategic partners because we were just doing so much work together. And the Brave Cultures work is a great overlay to the work that her team was doing. So she's Wiley certified partner. So she does the five behaviors of cohesive teams, and she does the DISC assessment, which is a personality assessment that really impacts communication styles. And she's, you know, got some other tools in her toolkit, but it just made sense to overlay Brave Cultures on top of it. So, and then other strategic partners, probably another that I use regularly, probably about a half dozen, but then another 10 or 12 on top of that, that can be called in on big projects. So quite a decent team. I am curious, why is it called Brave Cultures? Oh, because BRAVE is an acronym. Uh -huh. It stands for bold, real, accountable, vulnerable, and engaged. Uh -huh. That's cool. And also, uh -huh. I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown, and she has an acronym called BRAVING, in rising strong but it's none of the words are the same <laughs> so. when you start working with the clients how does it work they the business owners that want this internal change come to you so it's some something they, they can learn if they want to yeah so folks come to us they're in two places either they're growing so quickly they're not able to actually the team is not able to keep up with the degree of growth. So, you know, the, the old thing where they're, they're shoving the best engineer into the here lead the engineering department, but not giving them any leadership training. The other reason they come is when they've had a, either like a changing of the guard. So they've got new leadership that's come in or, and, or these often happen at the same time. They're in an inflection point and they know that old adage, what got them here, can't get them there. So then we'll have a, either the owner of the business, the CEO, sometimes the CHRO, the chief HR officer, or the, like the head of HR, whatever their title is. So they'll be the ones who initially contact us. But then the work that we do is with the greater team. How do you track their success? Um, you know, it's interesting because there's, it's the, in the short term, it's really difficult to track the ROI of being a conscious business. But what you do see is higher engagement, lower turnover, 
So there's cost savings right there. You see increased productivity. We're working with a company right now that is a manufacturer and they had, I've been working with the operations manager who's the second in charge and they estimated that the team spent 40% of their time doing rework. And now she's getting the, the numbers for me when I talk to her later this week, but I asked her to go back and look at how much money did they save in less having less overtime? Because if you're not having to do rework, you don't have overtime. And she said, oh, I know we've saved a ton. I said, well, go pull up the numbers and get them to me because I want her to be able to share them with the business owner so that he can see that the coaching that she's done has actually paid off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are some of the ways that we measure it. Yeah, I can't, I can't stop thinking about Patagonia and when they said, don't buy from us, buy one thing, buy only what is absolutely necessary, people started to buy more. Right. Because they are yep. so likable, admirable, and the reputation grew. But I think it's something you cannot hide. You cannot really play it for too long. It no. really is the case for them. Right. You know, what I expect will happen as a result of this global financial crisis that we're in is we'll start to see a lot of lip service for conscious capitalism and CSRs. I think we'll start to see a lot of greenwashing, but then you know, the cream will rise to the top and the, the customers, consumers are educated. They are not ignorant. They're not going to turn a blind eye, particularly the millennials and the folks that come after them is, you know, they're coming into power, financial power of $1.4 trillion. And those millennials vote with their wallets. They're going to catch if there's a business behaving badly. They're going to catch it and they're going to call them out on it. Do you think, coming back to the previous question, when the clients come, when they want to, to learn something and become different, is there a way, for the lack of better word, impose conscious capitalism on those who are kind of outside of this uh, ship? So... What I would say to that is that conscious communication is the container that holds a brave culture together, right? And brave cultures exist in conscious companies, but not every conscious company has a brave culture. What often happens is that they do the work of learning how to communicate more consciously and, you know, the emotional intelligence work, getting more positive mindsets. As they start to do that, we convert them. <laughs> so even if they, although we tend to attract folks who are already somewhere on the bandwagon, and as I always say, I don't care whether you're public benefit corporation, certified B Corp, or you're just on the spectrum that you don't want to be a jerk. Anyone on the spectrum is welcome. But as they start to see the benefits of conscious communication, they start to get curious about what else is possible. Mm -hmm. In case there is a business owner listening to us right now, 
one super simple step, like drink a glass of water every morning, one super practical, super simple step you can advise them to do to just start on the path. Start working on some sort of mindfulness practice. It doesn't have to take long. You don't have to sit in a cave for 30 years meditating. You don't even have to meditate for 20 minutes at a time. Start with five minutes. Just focus on your breath. First thing in the morning. The more you develop a mindfulness practice, the more self-aware you become, the better human you become, and then the ripple effect starts. The kinder you also become. So I see it's connected to well-being, health, you know, as yes. individual and personal as this. Yes, very much so. After the pandemic and everything, and all the, this Pandora box, it sadly opened. How do you expect the things, the market to change? I expect that there will be a greater focus on sustainability, which is good for you, good for me, good for everybody. I suspect that there will be a movement, this might not happen right away, but um, a movement toward right-sizing businesses. So instead of having these colossal behemoths with you know, the CEO making billions of dollars and the workers making minimum wage. I think there'll be a slower movement towards more wage parity. I hope that there's a movement toward like a universal income for people just so that they can survive in the US. I hope that we dismantle the healthcare system because it is a deeply problematic system that isn't really interested in anyone being healthy because it makes money when people are sick. Yeah. Quite sad everything that's going on. On the World Economic Forum last year, yeah, I think it was last year, the opening panel was on stakeholders' engagement, you know, awareness and so on. Uh, how do stakeholders uh, react to conscious capital? And by stakeholders, I mean all of us, I think consumers. Anyone and anything impacted by business is a stakeholder. And, you know, when you think that our, like, we have a basic human desire to be seen, heard, and understood. So when companies put a stake in the ground and say, we care about all stakeholders, there is, you know, shouts of joy because they understand that this is good. It's good for me if I'm an employee. It's good for me if I'm a customer. It's good for me if I'm in the supply chain. We rejoiced when we saw the World Economic Forum's message about stakeholder orientation. And then there was another group that came out, a business roundtable that came out about a month later and they also put a stake in the ground about that. I, I think the tide is turning. I think, you know, it's gonna take a while to change a system that's so deeply embedded, but it's happening. I'm seeing early signs and I have hope. It will take, I guess, new leaders, the leaders of the new wave. Yeah, exactly. 
I actually believe that I will see the tide fully, you know, turned in my lifetime. Yeah. Okay. To wrap up this insightful and very interesting interview, one piece of advice or a book you can recommend the leaders to read or a movie or something, you know, piece of advice coming from you. Yeah. Oh, let's see. I have such a hard time with just one book, but I have to give to you. How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi to help you understand the system. And then Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Thank you so much, Johanna, for your time. I wish you the best of success now. You know, just go through this hard time and always. And I am with you. I really hope that the tide will turn, as you say, and we will live to see sooner than later the time being better. Yes. Well, thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And I'll see you in the Ethernet. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Ciao, ciao. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions whatsoever, don't hesitate to let me or Johanna know. Please reach out to either of us on LinkedIn. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review or rating on the platform you're listening on. I invite you to check out our Podchaser page and leave a review there. I reply each and every one personally. The podcast is for its listeners, and by taking your time to leave a short review, you can help more people interested in practical aspects of sustainability to discover it. I'd also like to invite you to check some other re related episodes out, such as, for example, Green, Inclusive and Open Economy, or Why Sustainability is Not Enough. That was my interview with Ralph Term or Circular Economy Challenges and Systemic Change with Cleona Howie Del Rio from Climate Kick. Another episode I would highly recommend is The Culture of Impact and Purpose, or CSR, How to Give Back Meaningfully with Giovanna Jagger. Uh, another one uh, that is not very much related really to this topic, but it will give you an idea about systems thinking. I think this is how we can relate this topic to conscious capitalism, mindfulness, and things like that, is sustainable business models with Anna Itkin. Apart from that, of course, you are more than welcome to listen to every other episode that resonates with you. I'd be happy if you connect with me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions. You can even suggest guests or topics you'd like me to cover in the future. Thank you for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday. Meanwhile, please take care, stay tuned, healthy and safe. Bye-bye.